Warning, this podcast may contain bad language and content that some listeners may find offensive. Nicely done. Thank you. It's getting good at this. And it's only taken like a hundred and how many episodes? <laughs> Over 120 at this point. <laughs> but I won't say what number this episode is. But we have got another guest. Gary. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. Anyway. We're not giving this person a good intro at all, and Gary deserves better. He deserves better from both of you, especially. Why? Why? Why have you exempt yourself from this? Welcome to Seesaw Podcast. With your hosts, T, Cleves, and Selena. Every week, bringing some much-needed balance and humour to brighten up what can sometimes be a dark disabled world. Hello everyone and welcome back to Seesaw Podcast, your home of seesaws, slides, roundabouts and other playground equipment. We are back with another fantastic guest today. I'm surprised we actually got him. He is perhaps the world's busiest man and he is very lovely. So it was a pleasure to talk to Gary Turner. So, I'm going to pretend that we haven't just done some wraparound episodes and ask you both how you are. Oh, I'm doing good. I'm really psyched for this episode. It was great speaking to Gary, actually. I was dead intrigued about his fighting career. Wouldn't want to mess with him. No, you really wouldn't. And Selena, another sports person. Yes. Love sport. Sport is the best. Everyone should do sport. And yeah, it was really great to hear Gary's story. And yeah, wise words wise man and that being said let's jump straight in to this episode with gary the smiler turner hi gary hi thank you very much for having me on it's, it's really good to be here yeah it's really good to to catch up with you like, i know we, we didn't meet as many times as i would like to have done but um yeah so happy to have you on and, and hear more from you so um before we start firing questions I'm happy to to run off your list, Gary, of uh, all the <laughs> stuff I could find about you. But if I've missed anything, um, please jump in. Uh, you're a 13-time yeah, sure. world champion across three different disciplines of combat sports. Uh, you're a marathon runner, a mountain marathon runner, a hypnotherapist, um, an elite sports coach and personal trainer, um, a surveyor, um, an author. Randomly. Yeah, it's a random in there. That, that caught me up. An author, you have a book, um, and of course, a scholar currently working on your PhD. Have I covered everything? I'm sure there's a lot I haven't covered in there. Yeah, just about, but I was an ultra marathoner rather than a marathoner. When I retired from my sport, uh, my, my, my kickboxing, Thai boxing, mixed martial arts and such like, I started running and thought I can just keep on running. And I thought, what's the easiest distances to run? And it turns out it's ultra marathons. They're much easier than marathons or half marathons or 10K. You don't worry about time. You just worry about finishing. It's just one foot in front of the other. You actually get to enjoy it. You know, oh, I'm not on my eight-minute mile time. You just want to get get to the end. So that, that, it's actually really good fun. Yeah. As a 100-meter sprinter, the thought of running anything <laughs> beyond 100 meters. can't even grasp, never mind an ultramarathon. Unbelievable. Oh, I, I heard an interview with Carl Lewis. must have been the late 80s. And one of the fastest and best runners of all time. Uh, and he admitted that he'd never run further than a mile in his life. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, we could chat to you for hours 
um, on any one of your, your your many talents, Gary. But of course, it wouldn't be wouldn't be right if we didn't speak about your your fighting career. So, of course, thirteen time world champion. I mean, that's that's a lot of titles. Yeah, I, I'm lucky that um, I'm actually really really bad technically at combat sports, but I've got a competition mindset. So. When I was doing my, my competing, I, I just got asked to do things. I, I started with judo in 76, started competing in 1978. Uh, I was British school's judo team and I had a difficult transition to the adults. And then I found kickboxing at the same time. Then I got asked to do sport jiu-jitsu. Uh, then I got asked to do shoot fighting. Um, then, then I was doing K1 kickboxing, then Thai boxing. Uh, then mixed martial arts came along and I started fighting mixed martial arts at the end of the 90s. Um, and literally, if something came along, and I was asked to do it, I would do it. And now, uh, I mean, I retired in 2009, having, I think I fought in 26 countries. I've had over, over well over a 1,000 competitive bouts. And then I missed my kickboxing classes. Of course, you attended a few times. Yeah. I missed, missed that when lockdown came along. And actually, it's quite, 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 quite bad because uh, my mental health suffered during lockdown. I missed my, my, my combat sport community. And although I wasn't competing, I missed the, I missed the, seeing everyone down the gym and training with everyone. But now my, my love for combat sports is back and I'm, I'm now pursuing another. I'm age 52. I've got an artificial hip and now I'm pursuing my uh, Brazilian jiu jitsu career. So I'm eight months in, got my blue belt now, uh, and I've won my first two competitions. So uh, I'm still so I'm six six bouts in, unbeaten, and I've only dropped two points. So I'm, ha- I'm having a laugh. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's just getting out there and competing, having some fun again. Again, I, I suppose that's why your your name is the Smiler in in the combat area because, of course, like you said, there just oh, I'm just having fun, having a laugh, but then just slightly dropping in that no one's actually beating me. And I don't imagine the rest of them are having a laugh, being twisted into knots by you. Oh, it was really funny. So uh, I actually competed at the All-Stars Europeans Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Championship on on Sunday at Crystal Palace. And I entered my age category, which is senior, the over 50s. uh, (laughs) And the, the, the other people in the category withdrew. So I ended up fighting in the because uh, it's age brackets in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I ended up fighting in the uh, 35 to 40 age category. So actually, wow. two categories above mine. And my first opponent was the fella that won the English Open. He's really good. He's much better than me technically. It was really fantastic. And I lost. Uh, I got the first points against me. So we got two points up. And I, I, I got my two points back. And then it was two points all. And he was he, he was a right troublesome sausage. He really was. <laughs> so I basically just went for the advantages. I, I locked him off and I went for advantages. And I'm, I'm there. And he's trying to strangle me. And he's not going to get it in. And I'm going for more more submission attempts. I couldn't help it. I giggled a few times. I just saw this <laughs> puzzled look on his face. His furrowed brows. Like is 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 he giggling as I'm strangling him? <laughs> it's, it's it's I I enjoy it. It's worth reminding uh, our, our listeners and viewers that combat sports are sports. They are still a sport. Sure, some of them, mixed martial arts especially, for example, can be highly violent, but it's sports. And behind the scenes, uh, apart from a few idiots, obviously, and uh, I think I think fame and the, uh, the the showmanship in front of cameras is a bit, you know, takes it a bit too extreme sometimes. But we actually all get on. Yeah, We all look after each other, and, and there's a lot of respect in combat sports. So yeah, remember it's a sport that we do, and it's not not a, a mindless violence. Absolutely. So I I heard something. I of course doing a, a bit of research, which is rare for this show. We usually do around ten minutes <laughs> research. 
Uh, but I did hear um, on another podcast that uh, you had limitations on like, what you could do within sort of your combat career because uh, is it you, you're nearsighted? Oh, yeah, I'm blind as a bat, mate. When, no, this is really funny. <laughs> I'm on a disability illness community uh, sort of sort of uh, audience. I've just got as blind as a bat. No, I'm not. <laughs> I, uh, I I do have, uh, you know, I'm incredibly short-sighted. If I took my glasses off, I would be in danger trying to cross a road. But I can have corrected vision, no problem at all. So I can, with my uh, uh, eyesight and with my contact lenses, I've got 20-20 vision. But yeah. when... Uh, uh, I went to, I got a late notice call. Gary, we need you for Las Vegas, Battle of the Blasio, a big kickboxing tournament there. We had a fight to pull out. Can you make it? I'm like, yeah, I can hop on a plane. So I literally hopped on a plane, woo, over to Las Vegas, got there and promptly failed the Nevada State Athletic Commission eye exam. So ended up with a weekend, long weekend, five days with staff passes at the Blasio, working a little bit of marketing instead for the show, which is absolutely cool. But it did hinder my career slightly. Uh, it meant I couldn't box because I wouldn't be able to get a boxing license. And also, I was offered a UFC contract in, I think it was 2005 or 2006, via Scott Coker. But I couldn't accept it because my eyes were bad. And at that time, they still used the Nevada State Athletic Commission eye exam. Things have changed since then. But back then, yeah, I, I couldn't accept it. Mind you, to be fair, the money they were offering was absolutely horrendous as well. So yeah, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have accepted that contract anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine you can fight with a piece of glass stuck on your eye or, or wearing sort of corrected lenses. So, yeah, Oh, actually, I, I fought my entire career with contact lenses in. Wow. <laughs> okay. Which is really, which is which was really okay until a glove went across one of my eyes and moved the contact lens. And now I've got one fuzzy eye and one sharp eye. So I obviously with gloves on, couldn't put the contact lens back in and no way was I going to go crawling around the floor after it. So I'd actually knock the other one out. So I'm fuzzy eyed on both. So that <laughs> way I've got solution. some control. On my, yeah. some Because with, 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 with sharp and actually you, your um, distancing goes off. So I, I literally, you know, I've gone from sort of nice sharp, you know, binocular vision, you know, distance perception, all all okay. Suddenly, contact lens out, fuzzy eye. My distance and my whole um, where's my opponent was thrown out. So I knock the other one out, and I go probably perform poorly for about 20, 30 seconds as I switched over a little bit more towards my other senses, and then carry on fighting again, and then bumble my way after the bout back to the changing room, <laughs> bumping into things. <laughs> When you mentioned about the um, the eye exam in Las Vegas, and you said it had changed a little bit since then, now has things become more accessible since then? Um, I think it. I think it has. They've they've widened. Uh, I think the UFC have widened the medicals to more the country or the state, varying between the states, rather than using the Nevada State Athletic Commission eye exam, which is still particularly strict. And there's been instances of people fighting uh, who are blind in one eye, for example. So it's it's definitely changed. Boxing, I believe, still 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 is the same as well. I just touched on the accessibility in sports side of things. Of course, I did some kickboxing with you, and and Cleves, you did as well. And you've always been really sort of keen on that. From from what yeah, you know, I I know of you about anyone can do anything, and I know some people think it's absolutely mad with the vision that I have putting on any sort of like gloves to, to go and actually fight someone. I, I did judo for a while as well, and I never fought any visually impaired or, or totally blind fighters. It was just against just fully sighted guys, um, and of course adaptation was there, but it never really hindered me there. But of course, like 
when you're striking, that's a completely different thing. As far as I'm concerned, if I'm teaching a class in combat sports or indeed anything, um, it's open to all. And there's always a way of making it work where that person can, uh, the person who, uh, I don't know, who, who, who might have a leg missing or like uh, Chris Banton, the Paralympian who trained with us um, in, in a wheelchair. There's always a way of making it work where it's safe and, and everyone can participate. And I remember with Chris, we went to Chris Banton, who's a, he's a wheelchair um, uh, athlete, Paralympian. Uh, he competed at Seoul Paralympics, top lad. And I've known him for, for you know, 30 odd years or so. He's always wanted to kickbox. And a few years back, he said, Gary, could you teach me kickboxing? I'm like, let's find out. <laughs> and we literally worked out a system of how to fight. He's incredibly strong with his upper body, uh, although he's got, he, he's only got the tiniest of hip movements, uh, and that's the most that we could develop from his hips. But we started to see if he could stand up on his crutches and swing his legs. <laughs> he could, but the only problem was he couldn't stop the swing. So, yeah. so we quickly had to adapt it. And then with his chair, he had to watch he didn't roll over backwards off the chair. So he had outriggers fitted to make sure that he was more stable in the chair. And we had a push-pull system. And Chris has done great things. He's a, a, a qualified boxing coach now. He's done really, really well for himself. He's top personal trainer, highly respected, top, top lad all round. And he, he taught me a lot of what it's like to be in a wheelchair. He was very, very pragmatic with it. Like we were in a pub for his 40th and a, a friend of his was in a chair and someone knocked into him and, and he said, what's it? Is it? Is it? Am I invisible because I'm in a wheelchair? And Chris comes back with, no, you're being a knob. You're parked in the alleyway. Move out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's very, very, very you know, handy like that. Uh, the yeah. lift broke at uh, Virgin Active that he was at. And they, they said, oh, we'll carry you up. He said, no, carry the wheelchair for us. But I'm walking up on my hands. If you drop me, I'll probably sue you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Unstoppable. We're at a, a, a local authority meeting for accessibility in sport. Me and Chris went along, and they're, they're trying to make the the, the, the the local authority sport more accessible for people. And they were saying things like, oh, yeah, we're badminton. Perhaps we can do a, a, a disability session for people and such like. Uh, and and I, I was a bit offended by that. So why did you need a separate session for people? So I said, yeah, of course, you couldn't really have someone in a wheelchair doing a kickboxing class as an active person with everybody else, could you? And they're like, oh, no, no, we, we, we can't have that. Obviously, we can do something separate. Uh, so I said, well, watch. And I took Chris on the pads. We showed him what we could do. And, and I pointed out that he was a, a, a fully active member of the class. And they're, they're all sitting back like, can this be done? And I'm like, how can this not be done? No, absolutely. And are there more categories becoming available in sport for people with disabilities like obviously that's one uh, judo but are there other categories within other combat sports now becoming more widely available either in the paralympics or just generally really within that you've seen maybe within sort of local towns for people to go and take part in i'm, I'm seeing it within within my community quite nicely that with my friends and the people that i know there's most definitely uh, um People are switching over to think the way that I am, which is like accessible for all. So the end result is, yeah, I am seeing it. And it's quite, it's quite, it's quite nice. It doesn't really matter what you've got, you know, what your, your physical capabilities are. We're all, you know, I've got an artificial hip. I'm doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. When we go training, someone have an injury, we'll work around it. And it's no different. We just carry on working all the way through. Fantastic. So you mentioned injuries there. 
Yeah, obviously, as an athlete, um, I've had a lot of injuries over time, and it comes hand in hand with sport. There's no, there's not, there's not a sportsman on the planet who can say they've never had an injury. If they do, that they're lying. So, from your experience, and I imagine with combat sport, you probably have more injuries than than other sports. What what's the best way of, of dealing with that? What what's your tips and advice? Yeah, my advice would be follow the experts to the letter. So I had a replacement hip and I did my prehab to the letter all the way through. uh, And I did my rehab to the letter. I was doing body pump classes eight days after a total hip replacement. I was kicking head height again within six weeks and cleared to fight and run again after 12. And on the six week point, my my surgeon's nurse showed her, uh, showed him the, uh, the pictures of, of me doing my kicking, a couple of videos of me doing my kicking with this replacement hip. And I had an awesome surgeon. He goes, see, I told you, you do as I say, you get the results. <laughs> so I think it's, it's mainly listen to the uh, listen to the experts. Don't come back and push through an injury. Rehab it and manage it. No, that, that's good advice. Although I have to say I had knee surgery and my surgeon said, don't run again. <laughs> I was like, I'll show you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, not the, that's not the most constructive, is it? That's not the best. Uh, I'd, I'd get with a good rehab specialist uh, and I'm lucky that locally I've got two rehab specialists they're really really good and what they do is they they're experts within their own field but know the limitations so they might suggest you get the MRI scan or CT uh, they might suggest that you see an osteo or a physio and there's various bits of work that they can do so they farm you out and manage that injury in the right way. On the whole sort of like injury I have a, a question just didn't you almost lose your leg at one point and then started training pretty much immediately after that was sorted? <laughs> yeah, uh, randomly, I had a fight in Germany, then flew for a week's holiday in uh, a <laughs> nice hot country, accidentally flippered while snorkeling a sea snake that I decided to have a little nosh on my leg. Now, apparently it's incredibly hard to get bitten by a sea snake because the way that, you know, I'm not a fish and the teeth are angled back and, you know, it didn't get a good bite, but it still it still got me by the looks of it. And uh, by the time I flew back that same day to uh, to London, my leg had swollen up to the size of a baby elephant with the infection. And, you know, we get... Yeah, to cut a long story short, I ended up with my immune system had dropped and I had uh, a cellulitis in my leg that was rapidly advancing. And apparently it's one of the worst cases that they've seen where they've actually managed to save the leg. But I ended up with two holes. My leg had flushed the, 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 leg, the leg clean. And they literally said when I was going down, uh, I came to turn, we're going to rush you straight down for surgery. This is really serious. We've got to warn you, when you wake up, you may not have your leg. And my response was, okay, do your best. Like, Mr. Turner, you've got to understand the seriousness of this situation. I'm like, I do. You said times of the essence. Just get me down there. <laughs> so <laughs> when I woke up, of course, I had it. But it was, it was, I had two holes and it was tracking. I could literally put a finger in one hole in my leg and out and out the other side. And then it was three months later, I opened for Arnold Schwarzenegger, Friday Night Fights at the Arnold Classic. The UK K1 champion, me, fighting the K1 USA champion, Carter Williams. And I was only cleared to fly the week beforehand on my leg. Uh, and yeah, it was it was touch and go. And it's quite quite funny when you, if, if you, 
I made the national press because I passed them a camera to get me some pictures and I tracked my recovery. Uh, and a promoter for Cage Rage from the UK decided to to, to make the pictures public. Uh, and the, yeah, I think the Star and the People, I think Nuts and Zoo magazine, a couple of the lads mags covered it as well. It was like Cage Fighter floored by Sea Snake. But it's just cool. It's just cool pictures, to be honest. But yeah, it was just one of those things. You, you get on and you deal with it. It's That's all you can do. Did you win the fight? Uh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did, yeah. Yeah. It was a it was a tough fight. Carter Williams was a uh, in fact, this is just tells you how how cool the, uh, the the fight community is. We're about to go out, we've got eighteen thousand in the auditorium. It's a massive show and it's really cool. And I'm about to walk out and Carter's on the other side about to walk out and he shouts over, Hey Smiler! And I'm like, Yeah, Carter, hey, we're we gonna do the usual. I'm like, Yeah, winner or loser. Uh, uh, loser buys. Are we going for brandy? Good for me. So the loser <laughs> would buy the brandy. Uh, and then Cardo Williams, how he goes? Gary Turner, how do I go? Bish bash bosh. You're right, mate. I'm sore. How are you? I'm sore too. Let's go get the brandy. And you know, it's <laughs> it's the way it was. It's a sport. <laughs> That's, that's in, incredible. I mean, I can imagine that you would have still continued fighting, even if you, you'd woken up and your leg wasn't there. You're so driven, like you would have just, I don't know attached a crutch to your hip at some point and just carried on you might have gone in well, it, well it's, it's funny i've got a, a friend who's a, a really cool judo player and, and he lost his leg and he was like straight back to compete you know you, you just you know when it's when it's your life and it's what you do you adjust and you move accordingly uh, and just do what you need to do absolutely so of course like another thing we wanted to chat to you about of course today and like you said how yeah. it's like, yeah. amazing to be in like the community is so so amazing like with fighters and like you said there's a couple of rough ones out there but of course there there is one thing that does come with like combat sports and other sports and this is something you're doing your your phd on at the moment and that's like traumatic brain injuries and sort of concussions and that side of things um so i want to just pick your brain on this because you're doing a lot of like great work for your phd and of course you've got that first-hand experience um, so I, I suppose like to, to kick it off, like with your expertise, what actually happens to the brain, of course, like you're getting hit in the head and that can't be a good thing, but what's actually going on there when it comes to the, these injuries that are manifesting sort of like later in life? Oh, so let's see, let's see if I can do a, do a thesis chapter in 30 seconds. It's not going to make 30 <laughs> seconds, but basically the brain cannot take the strain. When we get struck, the brain is this, it's, it's incredibly soft. It's like this, it's like jelly. People think that you can hold a brain, but it's actually really hard to hold a brain. It like sinks through your fingers a little bit like a jellyfish. Uh, the ones that, are, uh, uh, that you can hold are generally already, already cured. So it's incredibly soft. Um, when the brain gets hit on the, uh, when the skull gets hit on the outside, the brain moves. It moves plus or minus one one millimeter in a linear direction. It rotate plus or minus five millimeter, and all the the tiny connections in the brain, they per perforate, they tear. Connections are lost, and and it happens at an incredibly low impact level. So all living organisms go through this continual process of damage, repair, repeat in an ever-losing battle until we pop our mortal coils. And in sport, when we are having repetitive head impacts, we're not doing ourselves any favours because we're we're accelerating that decay that's taking place. Give an idea of the, the impact level of it. If you head a football six times, that's enough to lower your cognitive ability, your uh, memory, 
uh, and your corticomotor control, the control that you've got on your body. That's just six headers of a football. It's been recorded from fast cuts and turns on a football field or even spot kicks. The brain cannot take this strain. So if you imagine just a, a header, and the study was six, was just a, a, a football lobbed underarm, which isn't much at all. And that's enough to show the damage. Imagine what it's like when you've got a seven kilo mallet swung, striking the head at 20 mile an hour. Yeah, That's what a boxing punch can do. That's an incredible so, amount of force. Yeah, but what makes it worse is if you throw a round kick, that could be two to two and a half times more, which is quite shocking. Yeah. Uh, it's the same kind of level of impacts as two cars colliding at 20 mile an hour. Uh, two American footballers wearing their helmets, charging full pelt into each other and colliding. The brain cannot take the strain. And every basically the brain can't take the strain. Every impact hurts. Uh, every impact harms. Uh, and it's also biomechanical force transfer. So the body can get impacts and the head can whip around. And that, again, shakes the brain on the inside. It doesn't bounce off the skull. It bounces off the soft tissues, the meninges on the inside of the skull. Um, and, and damage is caused. You can get brain bleeds uh, when the neurons uh, perforate or tear. The contents spill out into the brain, which needs clearing. In fact, every night when we sleep, there's almost like a, a cerebrospinal fluid housekeeping shower that takes place, flushing our brain, doing its best to clear the debris away. But what happens is the debris accumulates over time. Uh, and this is part of the reasons for the, the late onset uh, diseases like Alzheimer's. It accumulates in crevices in the brain, which becomes chronic traumatic encephalopathy or encephalopathy, if you're the rest of the world, CTE, uh, which is just one of the late, uh, later onset neurodegenerative diseases associated with uh, repetitive head impacts. Let's use that horrible word, I hate it, concussion. Yeah. It's a meaningless word. Every time you hear concussion, what you're actually uh, um, describing are the signs and symptoms. So the signs are, are visual things, things that we can observe, uh, wobbly legs, balance, tonic posturing and such like. And symptoms are subjectively experienced, uh, aversion to light and sound, confusion, dizziness, that kind of thing, headaches. So concussion is when the brain injury is so bad that you're you're able to visually observe someone with that brain injury, the change in their observable behavior, the signs, and they're creating symptoms, their own subjective experience of it. That's quite a serious brain injury. Sarislan et al. is a Swedish study into twins, and it looked at thousands and thousands of pairs of twins over their lifespans. And the ones that had a single medically recorded concussion had worse health and life outcomes over a whole range of markers. And think what we're doing in sport. I've, 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 I've probably had thousands of concussions. Uh, I'm, I'm part of my research is I'm working out what makes me different. How come, how come I'm, I'm, I'm still relatively coherent? If you've heard some of my jokes, you yeah. might, you might not agree. Uh, but other people, they're, they're, they're getting their repetitive head impacts. It's coming on really, really early. To give you an idea, so the later on, so 
We've got uh, straight away, every hit harms. It will lower your cognitive abilities, your memory, your ability to control your body. In the shorter term, it can lead to things like mood disorders and other behavioral effects like that. Uh, lack of impulse control is one of the things which can lead to an increase in aggression. Bear in mind, aggression is nothing more than an increase in competitiveness. Aggression can be positive as well as negative. You can aggressively move towards your birthday cake to beat your best friend to get your best slice with a corner <laughs> extra ice in. That's an aggressive excitement. That's not a negative. Sports players can play aggressively. The football team played aggressively. There's an increase in competitiveness. But if you've got a low mood, you're more likely to have perhaps a different kind of aggressiveness. Yeah. But then later on, we have the earlier onset, more rapid development of the neurodegenerative diseases, various dementias, uh, CTE, Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinsonism, uh, amyrolateral sclerosis, the good old ALS from the ice bucket challenge. Uh, all of these are more likely to take place. But for sports, the key thing is when are we likely to experience this? To describe this, uh, John Batten, uh, one of my uh, PhD supervisors, he's pretty cool. He calls it proximity of risk. And I love that term. It's how soon are we likely to experience these? In football, it appears to be 10 to 15 years earlier than the rest of the general population. So in their 50s, these dementias are starting to become more apparent in the, in the football players. With rugby, it's the late 30s, early 40s. People like Alex Popham, uh, Steve Thompson, with rugby litigation that's taking place at the moment, they're really suffering the, the, the onset of, of, of the effects of the repetitive head impacts from the early noughties, the start of the professional game. Yet boxing, we really, in the combat sports, bear the brunt. Uh, in combat sports, we're looking at starting to experience them and notice them from the age of 18 onwards. And in generally, it's eight years of contact sports uh, uh, participation where we can expect the, uh, the start experiencing the negative side effects. It's quite, it's quite shocking. And we are back. Perhaps the episode did not end on the happiest of endings with Gary. However, there is a part two coming up. So... Be sure to tip this out next week, where Gary will talk more about the damage that head injuries can do, but the way you can prevent, stop, and help people out with people that are taking on combat sports. It's a very Absolutely. positive episode. And let's be fair, we can't shy away from the, the negative aspects of these sports. It might have been a downer to an end, but it is important to highlight these things because they do have a huge effect on people's lives in summary tune in next week because good things are coming that's said say goodbye selena thank you for listening to seesaw podcast your feedback and comments mean a lot to us so if you'd like to get in touch you can do so in the following ways you can find us on twitter at seesaw pod facebook Instagram and YouTube at Seesaw Podcast. And you can also join us at SeesawPodcast.com. Remember to like, rate, review, and share with a friend. This podcast was recorded in front of a blind audience.